0: secretly hoping that nobody would show up. <laughs> <laughs> Here you are. Here I am. A few days ago Steve and I were walking, as you've probably seen us do, talking about Dharma, one sort or another and this time we were talking about who was going to give talks and what talks and Steve asked me something like, what talks do you have? Have you given? And I was like, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any talks. I haven't even prepared. I don't have any talks. Hmm. But what I do have, I realized, is um, something probably better than a prepared talk. It's like really deep care for the Dharma. And as I was sitting this morning here with you all, noticing the kind of superficial vibration of anxiety at the top, I also noticed there was some like a deeper sort of faith beneath all that that was like, not about me and it was really calming and settling so it it allowed this vibration to continue but really didn't cause much suffering it was like just a good reminder that that all I have to do is get out of the way (laughs) so if there's something that I say tonight that inspires you to care about practice, then that's good enough. And all the other stupid things I say, you can just let them go. No. <laughs> so I want to talk more about uh, right attitudes for practice. Steve talked some about that last night. And you have this handy little sheet, what is right attitude for practice on the back of your my and, and precepts, you don't need to reference it tonight, but you know, this is something that I've contemplated a lot in my own practice, especially over recent years. And so I thought I would just share what I've learned with you. We all came to this practice for some reason. We came as seekers. Maybe we were looking for something, some reprieve or some relief, relief from anxiety or fear or maybe a deeper kind of longing for something meaningful, fulfilling. I remember when I was little, I was telling Steve recently, this reminded me of my grandfather, one of our walks. He was a Southern Baptist preacher. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what I remembered um, about him was it came through in his preaching but even more in his modeling for me of what a spiritual life looked like just in the way he moved about and studied and um, was really careful about his words and um I mean, I have these memories, these images of him sitting in his chair reading or sitting um, at the dining room table praying or just by himself, you know, in his own way. But it gave me a glimpse into something that I wanted for my own life, Um, something that had that much meaning and carried as much um, confidence as it did with him. So I'd like to just invite you to close your eyes just for a moment if you'd like to and just reflect on why you care, why you showed up to this retreat, why you care about spiritual practice, about this spiritual practice that we're doing here. You can open your eyes and come back to the space with me whenever you're ready. It's good to do this, reflect on our intentions, our aspirations from time to time. And this is part of what Sayed Al means when he talks about right attitude. It's like what is what is here? Like beneath all of this noticing, 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 what is what's really there like a deeper kind of um, intention to acknowledge observe, be with the reality of our lives and so this is what we show up to do on a retreat learn how to, learn a little more of the the how to practice so one of the I'm just going to refer back to those from time to time. Pick out a handful of them to share with you and talk about them. Number 20. Fida says, don't feel disturbed by the thinking mind. You are not practicing to prevent thinking, but rather to recognize and acknowledge whatever. Thinking whenever it arises. Steve talked about right view and right intention last night a little bit. Right ten- right intention or right thought is like using the thinking mind to remember why we care, to remember what we care about, what are our kind of deepest intentions. And we might think about intentions differently than goals, although we might talk about goals of practice, like to be free of suffering or free from anxiety or something like that. But intentions has a different connotation for me. <laughs> Goals have like an end, an end game, like either you su- succeed or you fail, and then you feel bad about it if you fail, and feel great about it if you succeed. But intentions have a no fail mechanism <laughs> built in, and you can just like reset your intention at in any moment, just reflect and come home to what really matters. And so, in using the thinking mind, um, to understand what right intention is in the path, in the Eightfold Path. Right intention is described as renunciation, goodwill, the intention for renunciation or renunciation from desire, goodwill or non-hatred, harmlessness or not-harmfulness. So we can see if any of these ring true for us as we're on retreat, especially in moments when we feel like it's a slog or it's a little thick in the mind or a little bit stuck. It's nice to just be like, okay now, why am I here? Like why do I really care? Do I care? What are my intentions for being here? Do I care about being harmless? Do I care about not causing harm? Do I care about like noticing desire? and not always going after it? And do I care about myself and others? And as we know right intention, right there's an intention that leads to every action, whether or not we notice it or not, it's there. So we can actually (coughs) observe that, we can notice that play out on retreat or in our lives can see, like, sometimes we can even notice the intention to be kind to ourselves as we, whatever, decide to practice, decide to get up in the morning, like notice the, I notice this, like I don't usually like getting up in the morning, I can get up when I need to get up, but when my alarm goes off, I notice a like, ah, oh, I could just sleep a few more minutes. But sometimes it helps to like remember like, oh sweetie, but you want to be awake. Right? This is what you practice. This is the thing you care about the most in your life, being awake. And it really is the thing I care about the most, which makes it so hard to talk about it. It seems like words never will actually do it justice. So why not just get up? When meditating, both the mind and body should be comfortable. I talk a lot about this. The mind and body should be comfortable. You when know, I hear that, I hear more than just like, yeah, keep the mind relaxed, keep the body at ease. I hear something about how the means of practice should reflect the ends. Right, if we have these intentions to be peaceful or more peaceful in our lives, like why shouldn't our practice be peaceful? If we have an intention for non-suffering in our lives, why shouldn't we practice non-suffering in every moment when we're sitting and walking? Like The, mis- the means should reflect the ends. There's this great um, quote um, that some teachers I've heard repeat. It's a, a little story about Suzuki Roshi, who's a Zen teacher. And at one time, a student asked him, if I practice this way that you're directing me to practice, will I become enlightened? And he said, if your practice is sincere, it's almost as good.
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> a sincere
0: practice, is that not worth, like, that's the means. So in every moment, that's totally within our control. We can practice as sincerely as we want to. And when we, I hear that it's important to be comfortable, that the attitude of mind—it's important to have, you know, comfort and ease in the body and the mind. I also hear something about what I've said before is that the how of practice is way more important than the what of practice. Like, the activities that we choose to do, what we choose to do, are important. It's important that we make an effort to come to the hall, or go to do walking practice, or take up mindfulness and all daily activities. But how we actually do that is way more beneficial like will yield the greatest possibilities. I don't want to say outcomes, but possibilities. It's the art of practice. And we can think about this like more than just here, but at home. So we have this question that we ask new people in our lives, and like, what do you do for a living or where do you work? But what if we ask the question like, well? Yeah, you say that you're blah, 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 but how do you do that? Like, how do you show up at work? What's your mind like? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: There was a great article I read. Um, Gil Fransdahl wrote it, and he was talking about this a little bit, and I started to kind of like crack uh, it in my daily life. Like, try to understand and look at, observe, how I am in my daily activities, and also um, how other people are in their daily activities. And I started to notice like just these beautiful things about the intention with which, with which someone sat down to have a meal, like a coworker at my workplace, actually at Common Ground. Or our bookkeeper, her name is Gail Iverson. Many of you know her here. But she almost always takes her lunch in another room, just with her, herself and her food. It was like, oh yeah, she really cares about what she's doing, even in this simple way, while I'm sitting at my desk shoveling in food to get to the next task. And I like that the how of practice also includes not just knowing right attitude which does, right attitude is points to the how of practice, but also having right attitude is about recognizing when wrong attitude is in the mind. It's, a, it's like inclusion, right? Everything belongs here. So how do we have an attitude of inclusion? So if we want peace, then our practice should should reflect peace. And if we want freedom, then our practice should reflect some freedom from anxiety. And even if it's not a moment where there's no anxiety, then there's like um, an intention to have some space in the mind so so that anxiety can be welcome here too, in this moment. To not push it away or hate it. Um, It is possible to notice these painful states of mind like fear or anger with like some gentle holding. Gill also said that, said something like the, the pushing and pulling, the resisting in practice leads to destroying something rather than nourishing something inside. Like, yeah, that feels right. It's so all of this resistance that we do rather than like having an attitude of inclusion. Yeah, so Sayadaw says, don't practice with the mind that wants something or wants something to happen. The result will be that you tire yourself out. <laughs> is what I was talking about not wanting having expectations only leads to more anxiety but having an allowing inclusive attitude isn't afraid of whatever will show up even if it's wrong attitude <laughs> Then don't practice with the mind that wants something or wants something to happen. Yeah, the result will only be that you tire yourself out. It's good to read that more than once. I was trying to instill the love of reading with my goddaughter, who was like about six at the time, and telling her like, oh yeah, would she like to read? But I was really, she was telling me about this book that she was reading. And I was like, yeah, reading, it really makes you smart. It's good to read. You learn a lot from reading. You learn a lot from reading. And she was like in her really thoughtful way, just kind of sat back and didn't say anything for a minute. She was like, yeah, but you know you learn the most when you learn something when you're doing something. (laughs) So great. Yeah. So we're invited to, to really just watch and see what happens. To not try to force something to happen, not to push, not to hate, but to just hang out and see what happens without expectations. And I really don't think we can um, overstate the value of kindness in our practice It really is the how of practice. I remember being here on a retreat for I think the first time with Steve and Kamala at the time. And after six days I had this headache that just grew throughout the day. And by the sixth day I had an interview with Kamala and I thought that was probably a lame thing to talk about in an interview. I was like all nervous about what I should say and wanted to say something that sounded like a good yogi would say. um, and finally, at the end of the interview, I had the nerve to say, oh, but I have this headache, and I've had it for six days. And is this normal? Is this what happens on retreat? Just, you get headaches because you're trying so hard? And she just said, um, probably having listened to what I reported about, but something like that I heard, like, oh, sweetie, you can't just bore into it. You know, it's not a forceful. We're so good at being forceful. We have really learned the art of like, just striving and hitting it hard and trying to get somewhere. But that's not what this practice is about at all, which you've probably seen many times throughout the past four days, that the harder you try, the more resistance is there. It just doesn't, doesn't lead to opening. It doesn't lead to knowing. Touching our suffering is a tender thing. We're all doing that here. It's not easy. It's not... something we should take lightly. But it is something we should approach with, you know, a tenderness that understands the vulnerability of this human existence. And how many of us have notice something that's been really painful to notice like oh or feeling the the pain of a, a moment and noticing it with awareness but there's not enough wisdom and so it just doesn't let up it's like aversion or difficulty just noticing it noticing it and then there's just doesn't seem to look there's not letting go that happens that's not easy so we can really kind of understand what we're doing with great care, and compassion for ourselves and each other. We can even you know reflect on what it means to be kind and our relationship to each other. So we're here, we're doing this practice individually. Looking at the terrain of our hearts, understanding that what leads to suffering and that what leads to freedom. And we're in the company of others who are doing the same thing. And how nice it is to have people to practice with. And how we're all like creating this container, this community, this Sangha to be able to do that work together. It kind of wows me to think about it. I've said that before, but it's kind of, it's really special that a whole bunch of people who don't know each other will show up and be as vulnerable as we're all being in the company of each other and we're not talking about it all the time but we do talk about it talk about our practice every other day and we're sharing in really vulnerable ways what's happening in our hearts so it's like just remembering that and not taking that lightly and bringing that into our moment-to-moment experience here on retreat with our noticing practice and not, uh, not having expectations for what should happen in a moment. I found this poem in my bag that I like. Raindrops by Peggy Tabermillen. Anybody know this about things I was on a train on a rainy day. The train was slowly moving to pull into a station. For some reason, I became intent on watching the raindrops on the window. Two separate drops pushed by the wind merged into one for a moment and then divided again, each carrying with it a part of the other, simply by that momentary touching. neither was Neither was what it had been before. And as each one went on to touch other raindrops, it shared not only itself, but what it had gleaned from the other. I saw his metaphor many years ago, and it is one of my, this metaphor many years ago, and it is one of my most vivid memories. I realized that when, that we never touch people so lightly that we do not leave a trace. Our state of being matters to those around us, so we need to become conscious of what we unintentionally share, so that we can learn to share with intention. Yeah, right? Some heads nodding, you can nod them louder. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just the way we enter the hall, the way we file into the, have some food, the way we do our best to be here in every way that we do is really important. And if we need other examples, I mean, we can find them in our daily lives. I remember this, I mean, many times, actually, that just these simple kind of things that a friend, you know, put his hand on my shoulder, and just at the right time, and it just supported me in ways that I needed, or I received a note from a friend at a moment when it was just like a lot of self-critical thoughts, and it was just a note, a simple note of support, but it really just like um encouraged the mind to have a bigger view. Like just to look again, sweetie, what's what else is here? Is there is this moment bigger than all of these self critical thoughts? Is there any space around this tightness that's here that's gripping? And interviews are good on retreat for finding ways to have a bigger view. You've probably noticed that as we begin to speak our truth of the truth of our experience we might hear from others, their experience and that might help us like broaden our perspective or maybe the teacher offers some reflections that are useful and help some understanding come into the mind or maybe just help broaden the view. But this is, you know, this is not something that we should take for granted. It's just a a lovely thing that we're co-creating every moment that we're here on retreat. One of the important things that, one of many important things that Sayadaw Bhutejaniya points to in this, what is the right attitude for meditation list, number 23, is only when there's, talks about the five spiritual faculties, five spiritual faculties are good to run through in a moment, and you're in a moment of practice, like sitting or walking, it's Something that I do sometimes, I'll just kind of run through the list and see if the mind is in balance in these ways. So, there's a, the first one is faith or confidence. It's like we need a little faith or confidence to want to practice. It's like remembering our intentions, our aspirations, or it's one way to um, have some confidence. It's like that moment when I was sitting this morning and I tapped into something that was. Um, bigger than me, the superficial kind of anxiety that I was feeling about the self being nervous. It's also, you know, what happened when I received a note from a dear friend at a moment where there's a self-criticalness in the mind, and it's like there, it instilled a little more confidence to look again. Not necessarily confidence that I was a, a better human being, but confidence to look to see if there's a bigger view. And that confidence then inspires effort to be made. Energy, or Sayadaw calls it right effort. So this, the amount of effort that it takes to be interested in what's happening now. And then effort leads to mindfulness, continuous continuous mindfulness. And as mindfulness gets continuous and the mind becomes stable, Concentrated, but stability is probably a better word. And then as stability is established in the mind, understanding or faith grows stronger. I'm sorry, understanding grows stronger, or wisdom grows stronger. And as wisdom grows stronger, then there's a lot more faith to continue to practice. And so sometimes in a moment of sitting you can, it's one tool you can use to just go through the list and just check to see if these things are in balance and if they are, then practice seems effortless. And so even if in a moment practice seems effortless, you might just go back and check then too. Like, oh, is there confidence in the mind? Yeah, confidence is established. That's good. And that makes me want to like, keep going, keep practicing. Become interested in the experiences of now. And then as mindfulness, there's noticing happening, noticing of experience, and noticing the continuity that's established. Oh, it seems like mindfulness is pretty consistent, right? It seems like I can keep noticing again and again and again. And look at that. As mindfulness gets continuous, (coughs) there's this understanding or this insight. Isn't that nice? Wow. Now I have a little more faith in the practice. Let me go do this again. (laughs) That's how it goes. Simple. We've had a lot of practice with uh, many of us practicing for years, doing one-pointed concentration practice noticing your breath like we did on the first day and there's this concentration or stability of mind that is established by being continuous is it's just different but it's not any less of a practice it's actually just a different way of stabilizing the mind that's actually more accessible in all of our activities it's not dependent upon the object that we need. All right, I made it a half an hour. It's a little bit of a relief. i was hoping to make it a half an hour. All right, I have a few more things to say. Anything else is bonus from here. <laughs> to say something about these moments of stuckness we all find ourselves in these moments where we don't really know what to do we're sitting and we're not sure if what's happening some confusion in the mind or there's like sleepiness that comes on and no matter what we seem to do it just stays there or there's an anxiety that even when there's noticing of it it doesn't seem to lift or Whatever it is, right? One of the defilements visiting that's hard to to be with. And often this is this, these stuck moments are it's because there's something we're not understanding clearly. There's not enough wisdom to see to see clearly in that moment. And so what do we do? We we kind of get creative and stay with it, or we apply a skillful means. Maybe we open our eyes. Maybe we drop in a question. And sometimes a useful question can be a question that, I mean, is very simple. Like we've offered, is the mind aware? And then like, okay, at least we know that much. And sometimes the question can be related to some of the teachings. Like I'll often just, if there's a moment where I kind of feel tight or stuck, I'll just go like right back to the basic. Okay, can we, is Suffering, is there suffering? Like, just go to the Four Noble Truths and just from the beginning say, okay, there's suffering, I can feel it, what's that like? Oh, it's like this in the body, it's like this in the mind. So can I trust that there's a cause for this suffering? Oh, I can can have that, often I can have that, that faith, that there is a cause. I might not know what the cause is, I know what the Buddha says the cause is, but I might not see that or feel that right now. But it gives me a little, bit of, a little bit of something to go on, right? Just to begin to generate some interest in the mind, to keep looking. And also I can name that there's not enough wisdom in the mind to see it clearly. And so that is orienting the mind back in the direction of right view. Like just noticing that there's not enough wisdom in the mind is, is right understanding. Right? We don't actually have to have all the answers. We just have to know what we see and do the best that we can and let under, let our practice unfold from there. The meditating mind should be relaxed and at peace. You cannot practice when the mind is tense. It's like dropping in those questions and those stuck moments can sometimes help or running through the five spiritual faculties.
1: And then, yeah.
0: Number 12, don't have any expectations, don't want anything, don't be anxious, because if these attitudes are in your mind, it becomes difficult to meditate. Don't have any expectations, don't want anything, don't be anxious because if these attitudes are in your mind, it becomes difficult to meditate. And It doesn't mean that if those attitudes are in your mind that you should stop practicing. It just means that you should find a way to accept those attitudes of mind as they are. There's this poem that I wasn't sure I would read but I think I want to. Um, just to bring a different voice into the room, my favorite. Um, she's like a spiritual teacher. She's a truth teller, also known as a poet, Nikki Giovanni. Is somebody, I don't know if you know her. Um, and I just want to say before I read the poem that it really, it really reminds me of um, how important it is to notice those stories that we have or the expectations or our assumptions about how this will go uh, and how that's very different from our actual experience. Right? We might have, we've seen this probably a lot of times, I know I have, that the anticipation of giving a talk, for example, is way different than actually giving a talk. It's like a story that has its own dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> this is different dukkha. <laughs> I noticed this when I was last um, last summer when I was on retreat. I developed this cough, and it was an incessant cough, like for a long time. I was on retreat for a month, and probably for at least more than half the days I was there, I had this cough. And it got progressively better, but it it also, you know, progressed for a while too. And at its worst, I was coughing every, like, two to five breaths with an occasional, like, major coughing fit. And I was just really, like, you know, I didn't know. I would never have chosen that teacher, that cough, that sickness. But it turned out to be such a, a great opportunity to watch my mind that was, like, whipping up story after story after story about what this was going to be like for me and for other people, and how this was ruining my retreat, and um, I just came here for blah, and I get blah. Just all of these, all of these things, just again and again and again, until there was an eventual kind of surrendering to the the unpredictable unpredictability and unsatisfactoriness of experience. Like the body was just out of control and doing what it did. There was I didn't have any. There was nothing I could do about it except just be there and receive what I was being offered. And so this, this poem um, that Nikki Giovanni wrote is like really, to me, a good lesson in, in not making assumptions or learning how to under, see the story for, for a story that the mind is whipping up and not for the actual experience of it. In no way am I trying to say anything about, like, that difficult, that difficulty doesn't exist. And that we So I just want to say that before I read it. Nikki Rosa. Does anybody know this? Nikki Rosa? Yeah. Childhood remembrances are always a drag if you're black. You always remember things like living in woodlawn with no inside toilet. And if you become famous or something, something... They never talk about how happy you were to have your mother all to yourself and how good the water felt when you got your bath from one of those big tubs that folks in Chicago barbecue in. And somehow when you talk about home, it never gets across how much you understood their feelings as the whole family attended meetings about Hollydale. And even though you remember your biographers, your biographers never understand your father's pain as he sells his stock and another dream goes And though you're poor, it isn't poverty that concerns you. And though they fought a lot, it isn't your father's drinking that makes any difference. But only that everybody is together, and you and your sister have very good birthdays and happy Christmases. And I really hope no white person ever has cause to write about me, because they never understand that black love is black wealth. And they'll probably talk about my hard childhood and never understand that all the while I was really quite happy. Again, just like really points to this, like the assumption that we can have. Again, it doesn't negate the difficulty that we have in our lives or that we have different experiences at all, but just how different that story is, right? That we can hear, imagine something that's just so radically different than what we feel. And even in the midst of sickness, you might have noticed this yourself, like having a cold or being sick and having this assumption that, oh, this is going to be bad and then if you really pay attention in a moment it's not that all the time it's actually like there's some calmness in the body at times and some peacefulness and it doesn't suck the whole way through (laughs) Hmm. okay I think that's good for now
1: Thank you for your attentive listening. I do, I do, I do. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.